um, the brilliant men at the back uh, to show you a video. And then once you've seen the video, um, and we'll just talk briefly about what I do, then we're going to look at John chapter 10. And what I hope is going to happen is that I'm going to talk to you about the Jewish background that's going, around, going on in John chapter 10, which I hope will bring the message of John chapter 10 a home uh, afresh. So that's the plan, um, and we shall begin. So my name is Yoel Ben-David, and people often, when they see my face, which is often to be found in the uh, special line at the airport where the, <coughs> the dodgy-looking Middle Eastern men are standing, um, People often expect to see my face to expect me, you know, to speak in some kind of Middle Eastern sort of Arabic-sounding accent. But then when they hear the Queen's English, um, I often feel it necessary to explain where I'm from. So um, I was born in Israel, but I was born to a Scottish father and a Moroccan Jewish mother. So I eat spicy food and I wear skirts. (laughs) Um, I was then uh, taken to England um, at about the age of four um, and raised in England. I was raised from 14 to 17 um, in Paris, France. Um, My wife complicates our family by being from a Russian Jewish background, but born and raised in Berlin, Germany. So my children speak German to their mother, English to me, and then we all go to our therapist together to (laughs) deal with the fact that we haven't the foggiest idea who we are. Um, But one thing I knew from when I was just a little boy was that I am Jewish. My mother made sure I knew that I was Jewish. Um, If you've heard any Jewish mother jokes, then you'll understand what it's about. If not, come to me afterwards. I'll I'll tell you a couple. (laughs) So everything on television about being Jewish, everything about the state of Israel, absolutely everything I was forced to watch, including um, a very famous film um, starring an actor you probably know, Charlton Heston. called the Ten Commandments. Every year at Passover, three and a half hours I had to sit in front of that that film. It's just mental. So, when I'm about 15 years old, fully traumatized by Charlton and the rest of it, um, I start questioning my Jewish background. I start asking myself, you know, what is it What is it all about? And when I'm a teenager and I tell people, yeah, I believe in God because I always believed in God, My friends at school thought I was just a little bit um, loopy, you know, just like, really? Why, you know, hasn't science proven that all wrong? So I decided I was going to, you know, show them that, you know, it's not loopy. So I decided to start reading books about God. But you would have thought that a young Jewish boy would have gone off to read the, right, the Torah, right, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. But I didn't because I used the ancient idiom that if you've seen the movie, right? You don't need to read the book, right? I'd seen Charlton. I've had enough Torah, yeah? Three and a half hours every year. Do the math. That's a lot, okay? So I decided no reading the Torah. Instead, I picked up the Quran, and I picked up the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of Hindu writings. And I grabbed these two books, and I began to read through them, and I went back to my friends, and I sounded, you know, intelligent, clever, think I know what I'm talking about. But truth be told, I still didn't know who God was at all. So one day, I'm sitting in my bedroom. I'm 18 years old. I have the Quran in my hand, and a thought comes to me. 
And the thought is that if God really is real, if he created the world, if he split the Red Sea, I don't need to be reading through all of these books because he should be able to just, you know, show up, right? So I take the Quran, I put it down, and I said, God, if you're real, show up. And right there at the end of my bed appears the face of Jesus. So I freak out, right? I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, I'm afraid that, you know, certain substances that I may have used as a teenager may have been affecting my brain. I was afraid that I had like seen stuff on television and it was like, I, was, I could not accept that this was from God. I, I didn't know how to deal with it. And if you think about the scene, it's pretty crazy, right? Because you've got like a Jewish boy and a Quran and Jesus at the end of the bed. It's like, yeah, it's like not, it's a little funny. So I didn't know what to do. I couldn't accept that it was Jesus. I couldn't accept that this was an answer from God because, you know, I'm Jewish and just it, we couldn't do it. So like my ancestors before me, God was clearly trying to speak and I was clearly going in the other direction. It was Tarshish for me. For those of you who read the book of Jonah, you'll understand the reference. Um, so off I went to Tarshish, and in fact, I left England, which is where I finished my edibles, and went back to Israel, because um, my, my parents actually got divorced, and so my mom went off back to the land of Israel, and I went off with my mom, um, and when I arrived in Israel, I met the most beautiful girl in the whole world, who is today, of course, my wife, my wife Adele, and when Adele and I met, we talked non-stop, always about God, about truth, about what is this, about what is that. Why? I was very interested. Adele had lost her mother when she was three years old to cancer, and so her dad had gone on a whole journey of trying to discover truth. There was lots of new age, all sorts of stuff in her house, um, and we talked all the time about God and this, and is it this, and is it that, and I think this, and I think that. But after we fell in love, we realized, you know what, we do a lot of talking about God, but we do very little doing about God. There's very little action to our words. And there's a name for people who talk and don't do. They're called hypocrites, right? And so we had to challenge the hypocrisy of our life where we did a lot of talking about God, but nothing in our life reflected our belief in God at all. So there we were, two Jews living in the land of Israel. We decided, what are we going to do? Let's, let's, let's do? let's do Judaism. It was sort of like the natural thing for us to do. So we started to keep kosher. We started to keep festivals. I went to synagogue and realized that you don't go to synagogue once a week. You go to synagogue three times a day. So I started to go to synagogue three times a day. I started to study from the Torah, learning with the rabbi, learning with this. And by the time I was drafted into the Israeli army, Adele and I were living as ultra-Orthodox Jews. We got married. We were living as ultra-Orthodox Jews. I grew the Charlton Heston beard, right, nice and long. I started growing the curls. Adele was, you know, covered from head to toe. That was our life. Then while I was serving in the IDF, where I served in um, the head rabbinical corps, so like the chaplains in the U.S. Army, we have rabbis, so the rabbinical corps. So while I was serving in the head rabbinical corps, uh, a friend of a friend came around to visit. Her name was Judy. And Judy sat in our living room, and she challenged Adele and I. She said, Yoel and Adele, have you ever read the Tanakh for yourself? So anyone, what is the Tanakh? 
The Tanakh is the Old Testament, okay? The Jewish Bible. Had you ever read it for yourself? And you would think, well, of course, they're Orthodox Jews. Of course, they're in. Most Orthodox Jews have never, ever, ever read through the Old Testament for themselves. Now, I guarantee you that the majority of the people in this room probably know more about the prophets and the writings, more about, know more about the historical books and the prophetic books than any Orthodox Jew you will ever meet. They just don't read them. Now, they read the five books of Moses, and as I said, I was reading through the five books of Moses, but every line I would read through, I would read the commentary. Everything I understood was through the filter of rabbinic understanding. I had never read the book just for myself, just to read the story, just to read what Moses actually said. So Adele and I decided we were going to do that. We were just going to read the Torah with no interpretation, no commentary whatsoever. So we grabbed the book, and because we're not competitive at all, we raced through the Bible. <laughs> and Adele was winning until Leviticus, and you know Leviticus. is kind of <laughs> So eventually, though, after I won, um, we eventually got to the end of the five books of Moses. And at the end of the five books of Moses, Adele and I had a big problem. Because, you see, the large majority of the things that we were doing as ultra-Orthodox Jews were not written in the Torah. They were not there in the five books of Moses. We had based our belief system on the idea that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he did not only receive the written law, but he received the oral law. In Judaism, we're taught that there is an oral tradition that is received and is passed on, and that's where all these extra stuff come from. But I'd read the five books of Moses cover to cover, and the oral law wasn't even hinted at, wasn't even mentioned once. And so I had to ask myself the question, big question, who am I following? Who am I following? Am I following man, or am I following God? And Adele and I got into it to follow God. So we decided, okay, we're going to distance ourselves a little bit from Judaism, yeah, and just focus in on what this, what this book says. So we kept reading. And in the Jewish order of the books, it's Joshua, Judges, the two Samuels, the two Kings. We take Ruth, throw it at the back of the book. And then we go straight from Kings into Isaiah. So you've just read a lot of history. And if you're a Jewish person, that is some depressing history, right? We have an, an, an amazing ability to just not do what God tells us to do as a people. It's great. Um, get into Isaiah and Isaiah's poetry, and Isaiah, he just really is not happy with the Jewish people very much at all um, and keeps telling them how messed up they are. Eventually, though, we get to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, for those of you who don't know, is the clearest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. This guy actually wrote who Jesus was going to be, what he was going to do 800 years before Jesus was born. So naturally, I read through that chapter didn't understand a word of what I was reading. Just didn't get it at all. So I went off to Judy, the lady who challenged us to read the Bible, and she'd now become our friend. It took us nine months to get to Isaiah 53. Um, so I went off to her because I wanted an explanation. Now, Judy is a Jewish believer in Jesus who had not told us of her faith in Jesus at all. Why? Well, because, I mean, look at the face, okay? She was afraid. She was like, I'm not telling these Orthodox Jews about Jesus. So she said, God, I need you to show me a sign. I need a sign from the Lord so God will tell me when to tell them about Jesus. So that afternoon, when I knocked on her door and I said, Judy, you've got to explain Isaiah 53, right? It was, woohoo, right? <laughs> Jesus time flashing over my head. So 
she brings me in, sits me down, and starts to tell me about Jesus. And my reaction was, I vey. Right? I was just like, oh, I can't believe in Jesus, right? I'm Jewish. But as she's talking, it dawns on me that I've read through the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, lived the life of an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I know the truth is not there. How can I honestly tell this lady that Jesus is not the Messiah just because my mom told me when I was a little boy that Jews don't believe in Jesus? I mean, that's just not a good enough reason to say that she's wrong. So right there in that room, I prayed, and I was like, God, I'm so sick and tired of the reading and the searching. Just, I need you to show me. And the moment that I prayed that prayer, I had the same vision of the face of Jesus as it had appeared in my room when I was 18 years old. And I knew that I knew that I knew that Jesus was the Messiah. So I thank Judy. I left Judy's house, and I start walking home. And I remember my Orthodox Jewish wife is at home reading through the Tanakh, and I have to go home and tell her that Jesus is the Messiah. So I don't know how the other men in the room do this, but when I have a difficult announcement, I plan, okay? Right? I need a plan. I need to just, because you walk in blind, it's going to go bad, okay? So I walk in, and I decide I'm going to be dramatic about this announcement. So I walk in, I burst into the bedroom, and I said, Adele, something terrible has happened. And she said, what? And I said, Jesus is the Messiah, right? And I did the jazz hands. I did everything, okay? I'm just being dramatic here. And Adele looks up, and she goes, oh, okay. And I'm like, you're not, you're not hearing what I'm saying here. I said, Jesus, okay, that one, all right, is the Messiah. And Adele looks at me, and she goes, look, calm down. It'll be fine. We'll read a book. We'll find out. Stop worrying. Unsatisfied with the anticlimax of my bedroom scene, I decide I have got to go and up the ante on this discussion, and I'm going to go and get a New Testament. Now, you may ask yourself, where does an Orthodox Jew go and get a New Testament? Well, if you're serving in the head rabbinical core of the Israeli army, you will find it at the base, because at the base, we keep the Tanakh, right, which is the the Old Testament, right? We keep the Tanakh for the Jewish soldiers who swear into the army. But when we have Christian soldiers, of which we have some, we give them an NIV, English language, New Testament. Because Jews think that Christians only read the New Testament. So that's what we have at the base. And so I've got to confess before you, I stole a New Testament <laughs> from the Israeli army. In fact, we have a saying in Hebrew, Im kval as kval. If you're going to do it, then just do it. So I stole two. Truth be told. Um, took, the, uh, took the two New Testaments home, kept one for myself, gave one to Adele, and I said, okay, we're going to read through the Jesus bit of the Bible. Two weeks later, I come home from the base, and Adele is sitting in our living room, and she's just finished reading the gospel according to Matthew. And she's got tears in her eyes. So I come in, and I say, I say sweetheart, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? And she looks up to me and she says something that I'll never forget. Adele said, he was such a good man. Why has no one ever told us this before? Why has no one ever told us this? And it struck me. Because you've got to think, there are these two religious Jews sitting in a house. We were living in Jerusalem at the time. 
two Jews in Jerusalem, never having heard the story of the Jewish Messiah ever before in their life. And it struck me. I was like, you're right. Of all the stories I've been able to get hold of, of all the stories I've been able to hear about, this one, just not available to Jewish people. So, Adele come to faith, I came to faith. A year later, I was at Israel College of the Bible studying because I needed to find out and I needed information. Um, and then a year after that, I was on staff with Jews for Jesus. Because the goal of Jews for Jesus, as you'll see in the video, the work that we do is about getting the story out there. Making sure the Jewish people get to hear the story. Not because we convince people to believe in Jesus, because I guarantee you that is impossible. Right? I have tried. Yeah? You can't convince someone into the kingdom. Right? But we get the story out there, and we let the Holy Spirit do its work. So I'm going to ask um, the guys to show us the video. It's about five minutes long. You'll see some of the stuff that we do in the land of Israel. And then it's work time, John chapter 10. Thank you very much. So yeah, so that's some of the stuff um, that we do. Um, our other guys do all sorts of different kinds of outreach. But one of the things um, that obviously um, we ask for um, when we're over here in the U.S. and different parts of the world is to ask people to pray for us. Um, prayer for missionaries um, and the fact that people are praying for them around the world is probably the most important, the most encouraging thing to know. Because when you're out there on the field, you know very well that the one thing that makes the difference is God, you know? And people that are out there pleading heaven on your behalf um, and pleading heaven for um, the people that you're trying to reach, that's, that's the thing that makes the difference, yeah? The rest of the stuff is, you know, it's, it's coloring. It's, it's the stuff on the, on, the, on the outside. But the real meat and potatoes of our work is seeing God move. And, and being there as God moves and being available for the people that God is moving upon. Um, so prayer being the sort of the ultimate thing that we ask for, um, I, we, we handed out um, these, these little cards. Um, Brother Dave was handing them out. If you don't have them, there are some more out there on the, on the table. Um, but basically, if you'd like to pray for us, then if you fill this out um, with either an address or at least an email address, then we can send you the stories of what's happening, and we can send you those prayer requests. So um, if there's one thing I would ask you to do is, is please consider filling one of these out and getting our prayer requests and, and staying, um, staying in touch with me, staying in touch with what we do in the land of Israel. Um, another thing you can do is you can go out. I've got like books and stuff out there. I've got um, videos, one video of... Um, stories of stuff that's been happening in Israel called Flowers of the Sun. It's pretty cool. But I've also got Jewish gospel music. Everyone please say, ooh. For those of you who want to know what the worship service will be like in heaven, <laughs> get ahead of the game because we're chewing it up with the Lord. Okay. So there you are. Um, that's some of the stuff. And then obviously there's an offering if you'd like to give. I thank you very much. But I now want to turn your attention um, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is um, one of these great passages in the Bible. Um, it's often referred to, I'm doing my um, master's degree, I'm coming towards the end of my MA at Western Seminary. Um, John chapter 10 is the chapter um, that I've sort of seen, referenced to, and referred to for a number of different reasons. Um, 
Um, people use that and connect with that on different levels. But one thing I've often seen that even my you know, sort of professors sometimes tend to miss is what's going on in John chapter 10. Why the Jewish people are just a little angry um, with Jesus um, during this section. And I want us to have a look at it. So we're going to start in verse 22, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through, and then we're going to go back and we're going to have a look. So John chapter 10, verse 22 reads like this. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which one of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So, What is going on? Why are the Jewish people just a little bit um, on edge um, when Jesus is speaking to them about this? The main reason, as you can tell from just a plain reading of the text, is that Jesus is claiming to be God. Okay? Um, Many times um, when people read through this particular section, one of the things that we focus on as Christians is... um, we focus on a lot of soteriology. So soteriology being the study of salvation, right? How we're saved. Can one lose salvation? Can one do this? Can one do that? And we focus on that. And so as we come to this passage, we often have soteriology in our mind, and we see that Jesus says, no one can take these people from my grasp. And we apply that to our, our doctrine of salvation, which is very good. But Why are the Jewish people getting angry about it? They're not getting angry about it because Jesus has just informed them that they can't lose their salvation, right? That's not what's going through their minds. So why has John put this in this this place in the scripture? What is John trying to say to people? Why are the people getting angry? Well, the first and I think the biggest reason that the Jewish people are getting angry in this section is because of the time of year Jesus decided to give them this message. Yeah? They are really angry about that. 
they're really angry because at that point, they are celebrating the Feast of Dedication, right? The Feast of Dedication that you and I may know better refer to as Hanukkah, right? This is Hanukkah. And does anybody know Adam Sandler? Yeah, if you want to hear a very funny song, you need to hear Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. It will just, it'll make you pee your pants. It's it's just that funny. It really is. Um, Hanukkah is actually a minor festival in the Jewish world. Until a couple of hundred years ago, Jewish people really didn't care that much about Hanukkah. Why do Jewish people care about Hanukkah? It's because of Christmas, right? There we are. Sitting with a little Hanukkah menorah, yeah? And the, the Gentiles are rough. Christmas and this and big trees and they're all having fun and they're all getting presents, right? And the Jewish, the Jewish parents were like, you want presents? I'll give you presents. And we get presents every single day of Hanukkah. Yes! Right? Thank you very much, Christmas. Um, but, but so we have... It's because of Christmas that we make a much bigger deal about Hanukkah. It's because of Christmas that Adam Sandler... Um, wrote his song. It's because of Christmas that we need to you know, do stuff and, and make stuff Hanukkah. But before, Hanukkah really wasn't a big deal in the Jewish world. We really didn't care that much about it during, the, during these last 2,000 years. However, in Jesus' day, Hanukkah was a very big deal because the story of Hanukkah had happened only like 150 years before the day of Jesus. Right? So what is Hanukkah all about? Well, most of you have probably not read um, any part of the Apocrypha. If you had read from the Apocrypha, you may have picked up a book called First Maccabees. There's actually four different Maccabees, and they're all really quite trippy. The first one, though, is a nice, good historical account of what happens. What happens is, um, okay, who's heard of Alexander the Great? Anyone? Some of you? Okay, so Alexander the Great is a bit of a... He kind of thought a lot of himself, okay? Let's just put it that way, yeah? Alexander, he really just loved himself. And he loved Greek culture. And he thought that the East was full of people who really just didn't think properly, okay? So he needed to go and explain to them that the way he thinks is just much better than the way that they think. And the way he explained it and the way that people did a lot of explaining back in those days was at the uh, point of a sword. So off Alexander went. He was a Macedonian, sort of a kind of Greek. And off he went east and conquering here, conquering there. In It's really good, easy number to remember, 333. 333 BC, um, Alexander enters Israel. 330, he takes Jerusalem. And so he's trying to make Israel, the land of Israel, Greek. Eventually, Alexander, in his journeys, praise God, dies. Um, he's dead, but his four generals decide that they're going to cut up his land, and they're going to sort of take over. The two generals that are important to the people of Israel are Seleucus and Ptolemy. Ptolemy takes Egypt. Seleucus takes sort of like Syria, Iraq sort of area. And so they keep conquering, going back and forth, trying to have control over the land of Israel. Because you see, if you want to go from Africa into Asia and Europe, and you want to go by land, then you're going to have to go through the land of Israel. Okay? When God gave us the land of Israel, he kind of put us at the biggest intersection in the ancient world and plumped us right there so that everybody would hear about him, everybody would hear about God, because they had to 
come through at some point, they're going to come through our bit of the world. That's the amazing part about the land of Israel. So Ptolemy Seleucid, so at one point, the Seleucids are controlling the land of Israel. And they have a ruler who really, like, this guy was just off the charts. His name was Antiochus, right? The fourth. Um, but they called him Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And the reason they called him Antiochus Epiphanes is because this guy actually believed that he was God, right? This guy actually believed that he was the apparition of God on earth. He is God. So when he comes in and takes Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, pronounces himself God, and actually slaughters a pig on the altar, right? Now, as you know, Jews don't do bacon, right? I do bacon, okay? If anybody wants to bring me bacon, I've been living in Israel for six months now. I need bacon, right? Lord. But back in those days, we didn't do bacon, right? And so there's a guy called Matthias who hears about Antiochus Epiphanes actually proclaiming himself God, and he gets really upset. And his sons get very upset, and they start a rebellion. Matthias eventually dies, and his son, yeah, called Judah the Maccabee, yeah, right, which actually means Judah the Hammer, right? Take that, MC Hammer, right? Judah the Hammer, he comes and he whoops Greek butt, okay? He takes over, kicks them out, and we take the temple back, and at which point, when we take the temple back, we dedicate the temple. Hence, the Feast of Dedication, right? Which is, the word, which is what Hanukkah means. Hanukkah means dedication. The Feast of Dedication, we took the temple back, we dedicated it, we got rid of the Greeks. Right? That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering. That is what the Jewish people are remembering at this time. So Jesus. Now, we're going to challenge something else. Anyone who feels that Jesus was polite, right? Always wanted to, you know, just like be gentle, be mild, always be kind and loving. Right. Jesus decides he's going to proclaim that he is God on the feast of dedication. All right. So a bunch of people sitting around remembering the whack job who showed up and sacrificed a pig on the altar and said, I, a man, am God on earth. Yeah. When everyone's remembering that particular story, Jesus walks into the temple area and says, Oh, FYI, I and the Father are one. Right? Jesus didn't just fall into this sermon while he was standing there in the temple. Yeah? This was not a by the way. This was a very intentional, I'm going to get on all your nerves. I'm going to cause everybody to talk about this and everyone to get very upset. Intentionally, right? So that people will hear. Why was the Gospel of John written? The back of the book, Jesus gives us, uh, Jesus, John gives us a very clear explanation. He says, the, you, he said, you could write books, you would, you'd fill the world if you wrote the books of all the things that Jesus did. But these things were written, John says, so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, right? That is the point of the Gospel of John, yeah? It is an evangelical, evangelistic tract. That is why the Gospel of John was written. And he writes this passage in John chapter 10 
to tell people exactly how and when Jesus proclaimed, not necessarily how people are going to be saved and what salvation, how salvation. He came to proclaim who he is. He is God. He is the promised Messiah. Because you can't be the promised Messiah. And this is what the Jewish people were struggling with because of epiphanies and because of a, a strong monotheism that Jewish people had accepted and lived with and sort of seen as the only way. Um, they could not accept that God would come down as a man despite the fact that all the prophets had spoken about it. Yeah, Despite the fact that we'd seen it again and again and again. In Genesis chapter 18, God comes down as a man and speaks to Abraham. Yeah, All throughout Scripture, in the Torah, we see that um, God comes down and sits on a throne and has a meal with the 70 elders on Mount Sinai. Yeah? The glory of the Lord appears before the people of Israel at the end of Leviticus chapter 9, on the first day of tabernacle service, before Nadab and Abihu, the two nutjobs, decide to mess around with fire and get killed. Yeah? There's a lot of action in the Torah. God comes down and appears in human form again and again and again and again. But because of idolatry, because of the ways that we had messed up, Jewish people had got themselves into a frenzy that God could never come down as a man. But Jesus, in light of what had happened before, in light of all these things, comes down and he says this, I did tell you, but you did not believe. I told you that I was the Messiah, but you haven't been listening. You haven't been paying attention. Because they've been only listening with the ears of what they want to hear. Right? They've only been listening with the cultural filter of what they think the Messiah is supposed to be. Right? What do, what do Jewish people think the Messiah is supposed to be? Back in the days of Jesus. Huh? A king? I don't know about a priest and a prophet, but he's definitely supposed to be a king. But what is he supposed to do? What's one of the big things he needs to get done? To kick out the Romans, right? He needs to have, like, biceps, a couple of decent-looking pecs, and he needs to have a big, hairy sword that will cut Romans to pieces. That is what the Messiah is supposed to have in the days of Jesus. And so they want him to declare it. They want him to say it. They want him to say it where? Where is he standing at that point? In the temple, right? Surrounded by Roman guards. They want him to say, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to get rid of the Romans and Jews rule. Okay? That's, that's what they want him to say. But he says, no, I've, I've told you many times, but you do not believe. And then he says, he's, he leads up to the I and the Father are one statement. Right? He starts off by saying, but you are not my, you're not my sheep. Right? And if you're a Jewish person, you're like, hang on a second. I'm not supposed to be your sheep. Right? I'm not supposed to be any man's sheep. Right? But he's leading them up to it. You're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. Whose voice are we supposed to listen to? The voice of God. Right? I give them eternal life. Right? And it's like, what? Yeah? He keeps going. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Right there, 
remembering Antiochus Epiphanes, remembering all of this stuff happening, he declares it to them, I am God. And if there's any way that we could doubt what Jesus is saying, we see them accusing him of blasphemy. So that's what John chapter 10 is saying. So we've got to ask the question, right? Every time we study a piece of scripture, we have to ask the question, so what, right? What does that mean to me? What does it mean to me that Jesus is saying that he is God right there on the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem? Well, brothers and sisters, I've got to tell you that when I read this passage, one word shouts out to me, and that is boldness. It reminds me that when I go out there and I speak about who I am, I don't need to hide it. Now, I'm not somebody who thinks that I should stand on the street corner with the sign that says the wages of sin is death, you know, and sort of like scream at people in the King James, yeah? I don't think that that's great. Not because I shouldn't declare that with that level of boldness, but because I think no one's listening, right? I'm not communicating properly, yeah? I want to communicate boldly, but I also want to communicate in a way that people are actually going to stop and listen. And one of the ways that I do that in my everyday life, yeah, is just make sure that I am every moment, every single minute of the day, living as a Christian. Living as a Christian and talking about Jesus as the intimate friend that we sang about, as the intimate friend that he truly is in my life. So when I'm sitting with friends and they're, let's say, talking about a problem that's happening or something that's like difficult at work, yeah, And they're saying, oh, isn't this terrible? Oh, isn't this bad? I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to do something. Then I don't feel bad or ashamed or weird by saying, yeah, I'm probably going to have to pray about it. And I know that my secular friends are going to be like, what? Yeah? Weirdo. Yeah? But some of them who sit there and actually say, yeah, I'm going to have to pray about it. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I know, whatever. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. When they say that, when they hear me say that, and they hear me say it like it's not a big problem and I'm not being weird and I'm not about to do a Jesus pitch at them, yeah? Eventually, guess what? Most of my friends come around and say, you're really going to pray about this? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. If I'm freaking out, I don't know what to do, something bad's happened, I just pray because, you know, if there's nothing I know how to do about, then, you know, I just talk to God about it. And I know that he knows what to do about it. I'm like, Really? You know, I mean, do you really think it works? Yeah, and you know, it it often leads to conversations. But not because I got in their face and I said, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, you know, and sort of like gave them the 20 million verses and went from Genesis to Revelation and boom, yeah? That I often find as well miscommunicates. What I try and do is just mention it and allow people to ask the questions. Allow people to approach me, not because I'm preaching at them, but because I'm I'm just being me. And I'm not being ashamed of who I am. I'm being bold about the fact that I'm a Christian. And yes, I live a life that God is at the center of. And I really couldn't care less that you think that that's mental or crazy. Because you know what, dude? You know, and I I don't, yeah. I'm sure there's like a million things that we can point out in everyone's life that demonstrates that they're just as mental. So I just, that's the boldness with which I live my life. And I allow people to come and ask me those questions. And, and let me explain to you why questions are great. My grandma, when I was like, like 19 years old, 
I went and sat with my grandma, and my grandma um, sat next to me, and, and she said to me, um, mon fils, because she spoke to me in French, she said, mon fils, I'm going to explain something to you. And I'm like, what are you going to explain to me, grandma? She says, I'm going to explain to you how to get girls. And I'm like, grandma, you're just, this is strange. Really? Really? And she says, yes, 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 yes. Let me explain. And I'm like, okay, all right, whatever. And she said to this, she said, my son, if you run after them, they run away. But if you run away from them, they will follow. I'll leave it at that. That was the wisdom. What did she mean? She meant this. She said that if you start saying everything to the girl on your first meeting, and you start saying this and that and just doing too much, yeah, then she'll just run away because it's just a bit intense and it's a bit scary. But if you say a little bit and then walk away, she'll be like, oh, but, but I, I want to ask another question. Yeah? And, and she'll want to get to know you more. And this was my grandma's great wisdom. So, single men in here, listen to my grandma. But that is true of any relationship. That if we meet somebody and the first time somebody asks about Jesus or asks about our spirituality or asks about what we do on a Sunday morning, yeah, and we give them Genesis to Revelation, what's there to ask anymore? Yeah? What's there to talk about? You've said everything. But if... Someone asked me a question, so where do you go on Sunday morning? Oh, I go to church. Okay. So what church do you go to? Oh, I go to Berean Bible Church down there. Really? So what do you guys do at church? Listen to something about the Bible. We sing, pray, hang out with people. Really? Why? And what I've done is as I've given them short answers, and I haven't said, Oh, so you guys go to church? Yeah, we go to church where Jesus is preached and you've got to believe in Jesus right now, right? Yeah? If I allow, if I give people short answers and just let them ask more and more questions, what it does is it allows people to see that they're actually interested in what I have to say or they're interested in what Jesus is all about. If I give them short answers and give them the room to ask the next question, People want to hear more. But if I give them too much information, if I give them the Genesis to Revelation, then there's nothing left to ask. There's nothing less to talk about. Jesus had been going around um, Jerusalem. He'd been going around the land. He'd been doing miracles. He'd been giving signs. He'd been giving messages. He'd been giving talks. But he told people, don't go spreading this around. It's okay, you know, just this is the bit here. This is the bit there. And he caused people. He had the whole nation in a frenzy, wanting to know, wanting to him to explain who he is, what it's all about. Jesus knew how to communicate and knew how to create an atmosphere in which people wanted to find out more. What I get out of this passage is that we should do the same. We should be bold about who we are. Not crazy, but bold about who we are. Living Christian lives, talking about who we are naturally, and letting people ask questions. Letting people slowly, slowly ask questions and want to know more. Because in heaven, there's not going to be any unbelievers to talk to anymore. Right? 
there's not going to be people to tell the gospel to, right? That's what we have right here, right now. This very brief, very short thing that we call life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for um, your guidance. I thank you, Father, for your spirit. And I thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that you would give them boldness, that you would give them divine appointments and situations where they can talk, mention, discuss, get into a conversation about who you are. Because telling people about you is the most important thing, the most wonderful thing, Lord, that we can do with our lives. I thank you, Father. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.